The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, and I, of course, am your host, Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on this episode, it is musician Todd Rundgren and from Uriah Heap, guitarist Mick Box. This month in particular, June, is going to be a great one uh, for guests. So I hope you stick around and listen to uh, future episodes because I have got coming up Mike Rutherford of Genesis. We did half an hour together. Pat Torpy of Mr. Big. Yes, that is a good one. Uh, Terry Yalou, singer for Great White. I've also got Adam Mitchell, and uh, some of you may or may not be familiar with Adam Mitchell, but he, of course, is a songwriter, having done stuff that has been recorded by Anne Murray, Paul Anka, Olivia Newton-John, but more importantly, Kiss. Yes, he, of course, uh, wrote songs on the Creatures of the Night album, Crazy Nights, and all kinds of other stuff, so uh, tune in for that. I've also done interviews with Venom, to get a little bit more metal, and The Romantics, that's what I like about you. Yes, uh, the romantics. Uh, 40 years the band has been together, so we've got all of that. But first, let us uh, get Bill Leverty on the phone. Normally, uh, Bill just records his uh, rock talk, or rock news, I should say, in his home studio. He sends it over to me, and I sort of splice it into the episodes, but not now. Let me get him on the phone t- for some uh, rock news. Uh, here is, from Firehouse, with your rock news, the one, the only, Bill Leverty. Hey, nice talking to you. Live, Mitch. Live, yes. How you been, buddy? Good. Always good. So we've got a lot of rock news to go through. and, and But before we get into the other rock news that you have for us today, any, any Firehouse rock news? Hey, we're playing in South Carolina with a country band called Little Texas this weekend. This Little Texas is a band that we met uh, back in the early 90s when we first started. They were, we went to their show. They're a great band. And um, a promoter in South Carolina has put the two of us together, so it's rock and country. It'll be a lot of fun. Oh, that's going to be all. Yeah, and you've done some country stuff. But all right, let's, uh, let's get into our little segment that we call The Rock News. Got a great piece of news for you, Mitch, and your listeners. Alice Cooper has revealed that his next album will be released on July 28th. The 12-song album called Paranormal will also include a special bonus disc, of new songs featuring original Alice Cooper band members Dennis Dunaway, Neil Smith, and Michael Bruce, as well as carefully selected live recordings. Alice recently reunited with the original band members for a special performance in Nashville. Oh, that is great. Now, you mentioned, uh, you did that on purpose to pick Alice Cooper, I think, because he's, you know, <laughs> you, you know he's one of my favorites. So you know what? Uh, since you've done that, why don't we get drummer neil smith on the phone to sort of tell us about this new album and tell us about this special <laughs> performance in uh, nashville because uh that's what i like to do here on rock talk with mitch lafon and of course uh what do you think about that idea i think you've got every rocker's phone number in your rolodex and if that rolodex ever got out <laughs> oh man there'd be some prank phone calls made oh there would be so here we go let me get let me get uh, neil on the phone let's have him tell us about this reunited performance and uh, this new music he's doing with Alice. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. We are speaking with drummer extraordinaire Neil Smith 
of course, many know him from the Alice Cooper Group. But Neil, um, pleasure to speak you, with you. We've we've had many many conversations and interviews over the years, but this yep. time we're going to do this sort of update because uh, we are June 2017. The right. year itself marks a special occasion for the members of the Alice Cooper Group, but also you recently were at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center. Uh, playing with Alice and uh, at the end jamming with all the guys, uh, including the new band members. So um, let's talk about that first. Uh, how did this five-song performance come together? Um, and, you know, of course, you've done a few other things over the last few years, but uh, yeah. talk to me about this one in particular. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the fact that um, a couple of years ago uh, I, I bought a place to, to spend the winter out in uh, Mesa, Arizona, and uh, Michael, of course, is in Arizona. Michael Bruce and uh, and Alice both live there. And when that happened last year, uh, 2016, um, right away uh, in the first couple of days, Alice said, "You want to get together and work on some songs." And so that uh, eventually led to uh, five songs that Michael and Alice and I wrote over the the span of um, th- uh, a couple of months and in the uh the winter of uh, late winter of uh, 2016 and and we we played a lot of golf together hung out it was just just great for the three of us to to be together of course Dennis's book has uh, stimulated a lot of interest in uh, you know some of his stories uh, the original band and so i think a combination of a, a lot of things um then uh he started seriously looking for material for his uh, for his next album, which is going to be released uh, in July of of this year, 2017, and uh, I I think it's just a, a slow evolution of of us just getting back together and uh, and playing a lot and writing a lot, and uh, again this year when I went out, went out to uh, Arizona in uh, right after the right after New Year's. Um, we started getting together to write some more material, and and of all the songs we had written, which was m- maybe about eight or eight songs, uh, Alice and Bob Ezrin chose three of them uh, to record for Alice's new album, and uh, we went in the studio, the end of Salt Mine Studios in Mesa, Arizona, which a great studio, they, it was a great place to work, great environment, a, a great energy, and. Uh, we recorded uh, for two days uh, at the end of uh, February and recorded uh, the songs that are going to appear on um, Alice's next album. Right. And, and that, that's all sort of, you know, led to, to us talking about, you know, doing some shows. You know, well, you know, we've, we've done the Christmas pudding several times the year before we were inducted to the Hall of Fame 2010. We played there, and that's when the announcement was made that, uh, you know, we were going to be inducted. So uh, there, there's been a lot of good good things that's happened in, in recent years, and I think that um, you know you can't put your finger on one thing, but um, it's just been a, a comfort level and a creative level like we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, and of course the new album is called uh, Paranormal. So right, uh, you also did work on on Welcome to My Nightmare too. Is there any difference in sort of how this these two were approached? What was was it sort of the same working process where you just sort of got together where you're hanging out and, and they both sort of occurred? Or was this one more like, no, we're really going to focus on putting together the, 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 the original guys and, 
Was there any sort of difference in the, in the approaching? Yeah, the, yeah, there was a big difference. Um, uh, at that point for Welcome to My Nightmare, uh, Dennis submitted some songs, I submitted some songs, and Michael submitted some songs. And, <clears throat> and uh, one was chosen from Dennis again, one was chosen from me, and one was chosen from Michael. And the songs were actually put together and arranged before we went into the studio. So we went in and just uh, put our parts. I, I redid the drum parts of the song. The song was already arranged uh, of the three songs. And so that's a that's a pretty typical uh, way to have a studio musician come in and, and record a song, which is not the, the way I like to work. Um, but uh, again, that was great from the standpoint of, we, you know, we hadn't done anything in a recording studio in a long time. We were all there in the studio, Alice and, and Mike and Dennis and I, we were all there and Bob Ezrin. So that was that was fun doing it. But these songs on this album, we actually started working on them in the studio, in a in a rehearsal studio, in a rehearsal format. And uh and then we uh Michael and I were working on them. Um Alice had already worked on the lyrics and the arrangements and, <clears throat> and we took them into Michael's studio a couple of days before we went in to record, Dennis flew out from um, from the East Coast, flew out to Arizona to work with Michael and I to, to lock in the arrangements, and we recorded four songs at the end of, uh, of February. So it, it was similar and it was different. Uh, I mean, when we get together, it's always the same. I mean, it was just a matter of, you know, we, we laid down some new tracks uh, for the songs on the, the Paranormal album, the other uh, on Welcome to My Nightmare, the songs were already recorded, and we, even though there were songs that we wrote, uh, Bob uh, Bob Ezrin arranged them, and and uh, you know they had some musicians put them down, and we went in and just uh, you know did our thing and played our our parts on the uh, on the on the song. So it was, it was they were both done differently, and like I say, I prefer the the latter, the one we just did to the uh, to the former. Yeah, and I, and I have to say, as a, as a fan, I'm very much. Uh, anticipating this sort of and 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 i guess the word reunion is is sort of a misnomer but 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 i mean is there a better word for it right i mean it's getting back yeah i i I think reunion is a a little bit um you know overused word and right i i think it's i think it's just uh i like uh i i I like it as um you know the new phase of of the original alice cooper group and I'd rather you know look at it like that because <clears throat> I mean Glenn uh, was very instrumental in, in uh, and that's not a pun, but in in the original band uh, on a lot of levels from you know get, getting me into the band and and from you know his expertise and his work on Schools Out album, which I consider that's Glenn's album, and uh, so I I think that this is just another phase. I mean we you know we're we're in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame now. Uh, Big difference is yeah, everybody's established in their lives and their families and their homes, and nobody's starving. I mean, <laughs> you know, back in the day we were starving, and uh, musicians to, you know, were the perfect example of that. And uh, so now we've you know we've we've achieved everything we've ever wanted to in our life, and now we just want to have some fun and play some some really really good rock and roll and some you know write some songs and and yeah. and and uh, you know don't just do it passively like okay yeah we're just going to do it. We do it with a lot of enthusiasm <clears throat> and a lot of energy, and I think that that's uh, that's what happens when we get together. The chemistry's always there. Yeah, and and that's what I think is is special about this. Now, uh, you you were mentioning before that 2017 was a special year for the Alice Cooper Band. 
Um, what are sort of the, the occasions that 2017 marks for the group? Well, in the summer of love, 1967, which of course the Doors, Jimi Hendrix, and the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper was a, you know, was was great music being played, and the, the we were, we had already been friends. We were all attending um, college in in in, uh, in Arizona, and the class of '66 to '67, and uh, Glendale uh, Glendale Community College, and <clears throat> and uh, so. It ended up the end of the summer. We were all in town because uh, the band I was with went to San Francisco and and the Naz. They were they were called the Naz at the time. That became Alice Cooper later on. Once I was in the band, but um, the Naz uh, went to Los Angeles, and uh, things just brought us all back. And by the end of uh, summer, we were back in in uh, in Phoenix, and and we played together for the first time. Just jammed um, without Alice. It was just a you know Mike and Dennis and Glenn and I. And 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 those have been documented. Those jams out in the desert have been documented many times, and Dennis talks about them in his book. And um, so that's really the first time that we played together. And by the fall of two thousand of, of 1967, um, their drummer John Spear had quit. I was living with him in uh, um, Santa Monica, California. John went back to Phoenix. I was living there, and they asked me if I wanted to, you know, be in the band. I, and I said yes. And so that's that was 50 years ago, which first of all, Mitch, I can't believe it was that long ago. I mean, I I don't feel like it's that been that long, especially when we get together and play it. It just seems like yesterday, Definitely. but um, but uh, that that's pretty significant. And and the unfortunate anniversary also it was 1997 when uh, when when Glenn uh, Buxton passed away, which was which is still very sad for us, but. Um, so that's 20 years ago, and I can't believe that that's been 20 years since since that happened. So so 2017 is a is a is a uh, uh, a very you know couple of big milestones in in our career. Yeah, and and I certainly think that uh, both uh, this year deserve to be celebrated. 50 years of anybody in the music business as a career is is almost unheard of. I mean, there's yep. really not been a lot who have done it, and and Glenn's life certainly deserves to be celebrated this year um, because, you know, what you guys have done together, especially back, you know, on uh, Love It to Death and and, um, Killer and Schools Out, I mean, it's music for the ages. I mean, that stuff just doesn't get old. So, yeah, uh, calls for a great celebration. And um, we'll finish on this since we're just doing a, a quick update. You've done, you know, Welcome to My Nightmare, Hollywood Vampires. Now, you just played, I guess, a song on that and uh, Paranormal. Do you see yourself at some point doing something further with Alice where the band would just do an entire album and, and sort of try to make it sort of old school, like, hey, it's for our 50th anniversary, here are the, the best 12 songs we've got, and here is an Alice Cooper group album. Is that something that you can see? Well, I've been working on that for 10 or 15 years, so anytime we're in the studio, I'm <clears throat> I'm ecstatic about that from the standpoint of just the four of us getting together. I mean, you know, whatever comes out of it comes out of it. But I, but uh, it was back in the early 2000s when I started talking about, and really just, I mean, everybody is for that, and it's gotten closer and closer now. Whether it will ever come to fruition, I don't know. But uh, my my ultimate um, uh, goal, for, and this again is for the fans, uh, and they've been phenomenal. I mean, we these shows in Nashville, we had we had fans come from all over the country. Canada, uh, as far away as Australia and uh, in the UK, 
So I mean, the, the support is is great, and and I, I you know I just I just can't believe it. It's great, and um, uh, but but my ultimate thing to do would be to work with Bob and to, to create a full album together. I, I don't know if that'll ever happen because Alice likes to you know work with a lot of different musicians these days, um, but you know it would be great if it does. But in the meantime, if we uh, can contribute and and play and hang out together and uh, you know there's there one thing's always led to another. There, I mean this, the Nashville two shows those just sort of happened. Um, there's nothing planned right now, but I know that uh, everybody's open for uh, you know more possibilities of of playing live uh, down the line. To, I mean I know Alice is touring a lot um, through the end of this year. Uh, nothing, you know, has been talked about or in stone, but, uh, you know, we're, we're always open for those discussions. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just hopeful and I'm thankful for everything that we've done so far. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, and I've got to say, as a fan, I'm sort of torn because the, the band he's got now with Nita and Tommy and, and Glenn is absolutely phenomenal. But oh, they're a great the, band. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But, 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 but the little kid in me seeing the guys back together, <laughs> I've got these two opposite forces that are, uh, uh, my, my solution is that the new man should come out with Alice and play all the sort of 1980s to now stuff and then, you know, intermission and then the old band or the older band, whatever you want to call it, comes out and does, you know, the first three, four albums and just have Alice opens for Alice. And that, that you can would just be... call it, Mitch, you can just call it the Hall of Fame band. Yeah, yeah, the Hall of Fame, man. Yeah, that would that would be better, and and that would be my my hope. And uh, there you go. But uh, thank you for the update today. It's always always Absolutely. a pleasure. And uh, it, it's just when you look at you know whatever Rolling Stone magazine or any of these sites, and you see original band back together, or you go to YouTube and you see, oh, here's the, uh, you know, there's a little part of you that gets tickled inside, and <laughs> you know. I, well, there was there was a great response to the people that were there. I. They they said that when the curtain came up and we were starting I'm 18 the uh, it's it's Michael's uh, original intro to I'm 18 which has never been recorded but it's on it's all over YouTube but the curtain came up they said the energy level and the 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 uh, feeling in that in that uh, theater just went up two three hundred percent they said and and that made you know that made all the difference to us and uh, you know that 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 people can actually sense it feel it and uh nothing you can't take anything away from alice's band they're a great band they're we're all good friends and that's fantastic and you see the the schools out the wall that we did the finale in um, in nashville and it's it it, it sounded massive and it was monstrous but uh but it's you're right it's just two different entities and 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 there's nothing wrong with that and it's good good for alice he has a lot of great things going on right now yeah and it's and it's great for the fans it's great to know that we could go to a show and see tommy and nita and glenn or we could buy a ticket and it could be you guys there's there's that sort of excitement that that's that's great and uh there you go always in the future oh well more music that's all that's all we care about more music more more music more shows but always a pleasure and uh we shall do this again soon, and thank you for the uh, sort of the, the the rock news update. All right, Mitch. Thank you. Have a good one. Cheers. All right, you too. Bye bye. Cheers. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVaughn. Mitch LaVaughn. And there you have it, straight from Neil Smith, drummer for Alice Cooper, or formerly of Alice Cooper. How cool was that, Bill? We we brought the news alive. 
Man, that's that's awesome that you can do that. Only Mitch LaFon <laughs> has that ability. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great ability. Now, have you ever, in all your touring years, met Alice, uh, seen him, uh, been on a festival bill or anything with him? Well, yeah, actually, um, when we were on Epic Records, we had the same publicist, a great publicist named Ellen Solis. And Ellen Solis was not only Firehouse's publicist, but also Alice Cooper's publicist. And for some reason, I got chosen to go do a meet and greet for some event. And I, they sat me right next to Alice Cooper. So I talked to him uh, while he talked to fans for, you know, two hours or so in New York City. And he was the nicest guy. And it taught me a huge lesson of how to treat fans. Because as big of a star as Alice Cooper, he stood up for everybody, shook everybody's hand, took pictures, and, and was so gracious to everybody. And it really taught me that uh, that's, the way you need to, that's the way you need to be. Yeah, and, and I, I can certainly vouch for, for the Firehouse guys. That, that's how you guys have always been, and I think that's how come we became friends, because you've always been very, very nice to everybody, and uh, there you go. Um, let me move on to uh, Todd Rundgren. Thank you for the, the rock news, and of course I encourage everybody to head over to Leverty.com and check out what you're doing. Uh, thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks, Mitch. Have a great, have a great one, bud. Thank you. Big thank you to Bill Leverty of Firehouse and Neil Smith, formerly of the Alice Cooper Group, for the rock news. But now it is time to get into our interviews. I've got two great ones for you. Uh, on the second part of the show, I've got Mick Box of Uriah Heep going through the uh, history of the band and all kinds of wonderful things. But up front, it is musician and producer Todd Rundgren. He has got a new album out called White Night, and uh, he also produced a uh, Cheap Trick album called Next Position Please. It is one of those weird albums that uh, wasn't sort of classic Cheap Trick, but wasn't really modern Cheap Trick, and it sort of fell through the cracks, and there was all kinds of record company politics and all that, and uh, I wanted to get sort of the history of that being a huge Cheap Trick fan that I am. So without further ado, because, um, you know, that's what we're here for, interviews. Here is the one, the only, musician, producer, Todd Rundgren. Hey, Todd, pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. So let me talk, uh, let's start off with the new album, White Night. Um, collaborative effort. Uh, you have, of course, over the, your career, taken control of a lot of your albums, done a lot of the guitar work and the musicianship and all that. Um, talk to me about the concept here of putting together this more collaborative effort and bringing in other musicians. I... Uh moved to the island of Kauai about 22 years ago. And since then, a majority of my recording projects have been mostly me because it's so difficult to get people to come over just to do a song or two. And that's the way I tend to write. I don't write a whole album's worth and then record it. I do fragments of things and then they kind of come together in a, in a congealing process. And, uh, it's just been a lot more convenient for me to do it myself. But when I was approached by Cleopatra to do this record, I thought it was about time that I got a little bit more actively collaborative just to get out of my own echo chamber and so that I wouldn't be preaching to, my, to the same choir all the time, you know, just to my own audience. I wanted to make it collaborative so that me and the other artists would be able to share each other's audiences in a way and maybe reintroduce ourselves to a wider 
listenership. Yeah. Now, as a Canadian, one name jumps out at me particularly, and it's Moberg of, of the Pursuit of Happiness, or formerly of Pursuit of Happiness. How did you uh, hook up with Mo, and and what does he bring to the table? Well, Mo and I have never really sort of unhooked. It's just that he got out of the, well, he stopped uh, being in a band. That was one thing. So he more or less didn't travel so much anymore, and he got more into record production, but I kept in touch with him over the years. And when it got to uh, making a list of people that I wanted to collaborate with, uh, it included people that I had worked with before, and I knew what what kind of songs Mo might be able to come up with. So I definitely contacted him during the process, and he fortunately happened to have something, or he had something in mind in any case, and it didn't take him long to turn it around and send it back to me. Yeah, and and it's it's a, it's a great sounding song. Um, at the Berkeley commencement address of 2017, you said at one point, and I quote, "The one thing I did know." Uh, was that I was a musician, uh, you know, growing up. Um, talk to me about that. Uh, how, how did you get that sense that you were sort of born to be a musician? And, and I'm very much interested in sort of the, the creative aspect because I, I've always felt that, you know, some kids are good at school and some aren't, but that doesn't mean that they're not good at the rest of life kind of thing. Um, how did you know that you were a musician? What, 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 talk to me about that process. Um, I guess part of it is, you know, of the options you have when you're a child, you know, what you gravitate to. And my earliest memories are a 45 RPM player that my parents gave me and stacks of these, um, it's mostly Boston pops doing like classical music, like skaters, waltz and chicken reel and stuff like that. And you could stack them up on the spindle and they would play through and then I would take the pile off and flip it over and play it through again and I would do that for hours. And while other kids might want to go out and play in the mud or something, I just preferred listening to music. And if I ever got near something that you could make music on, I would start banging on it. My grandmother had a piano in her attic. And whenever we would go to her house, the first thing I would do is go up to the attic and start messing around on the piano. I had no idea what I was doing, but it sounded wonderful to me. So my earliest memories are of of listening to music and trying to make music. And uh, as soon as there was a program in my kindergarten, in my uh, elementary school where they would offer instruments for rental. You get lessons maybe once a week. I immediately got into that. I thought I wanted to play the flute, but I was too young. I couldn't figure out the fingering and my embouchure wasn't developed. So essentially, I learned how to play the clarinet that my sister had rented. Eventually, I focused on guitar and I became fixated on that. But later on in life, you know, just that kind of lack of fear <laughs> of uh, picking up an instrument and trying to make a sound with it. Just that natural inclination is why my records turned out the way they did. I would learn how to play saxophone just to play a couple of notes on one song. I would learn to play oboe just to play a couple notes on one song. Uh, just kind of just born that way. Yeah. And, and excuse me if I rush through this, because they told me we had 15 minutes, but um, 
You know, over the over the years, the last 20 years, uh, both in Canada and in the States, they seem to have been cutting back on music programs in, in schools, you know, budget concerns and this and that. It, do you see that as, as, as a tragedy? And, and how do you think we should foster somebody like you at, at that age who thought, hey, I'm a musician? Well, ironically enough, uh, just a couple of years ago, we started a, a nonprofit called the Spirit of Harmony. Right. And it was... Uh, Spurred on essentially by the fans, an experience we had when we were doing a fan camp uh, in the New Orleans area. And we went to see a, a young program in the Lower Ninth Ward that had been hit hard by the hurricane. And so the fans collected some money. We gave them a $10,000 check, you know, to help their program. And everybody involved, you know, gave them such a good feeling. They thought we have to make this something more permanent. So at first, we weren't sure what to focus on. You know, there's a lot of things you could do. You could uh, become like a fundraising entity and pick out a couple of programs and just try and adopt them and make sure that they get funded. But we came upon some research that said that showed that if kids get some very early music education when they're in elementary school and they get maybe two years of instrument training, it completely changes the way that they process sound and gives them like advantages that stick with them for the rest of their life, even if they don't go on to be a musician, even if they don't continue their musical education. The brain changes the way that it interprets sounds. And so armed with that data, we've decided that we're an advocacy organization to try and, first of all, advocate to get music programs back into schools, especially in the early grades to give anyone who wants to go to their school system or their school the ammunition they need to make that argument. And then whenever there are programs that need help, to connect them with the resources that will help them to continue their program. So uh, ironically enough, you've hit the nail on the head on what we thought was the problem. You know, the music programs are the first to get cut because people think that they're just feel-good programs, you know, the yeah, we know what the obvious benefits are, the camaraderie of kids working together on music and, oh, it may keep kids out of trouble. But it isn't until recently we realized what actual effect it has on the brain and how that can last and benefit you for the rest of your life. Oh, it really can. And and it's just a shame to see it go. And, and you know, we've all been there where... We haven't heard a song for 20 years or 25 years, and then it comes on the radio, and you can sing all the lyrics. There, there is, a, there is a, uh, an aspect of memory and all. Anyway, um, b- before we run out of time, uh, let me move along to some of the other things. You have produced some of uh, Rock's most iconic albums, New York Dolls, uh, Bad Out of Hell, and all that. I, I do want to talk about those, but I, I want to get to Next Position, Please, by uh, Cheap Trick. I've always been a huge Cheap Trick fan. Um, talk to me about that collaboration and how it came together, because it, it, at the time it seemed sort of like two worlds apart coming together. Now, looking back, it seems like, well, that was the perfect choice. Um, just a few words on Next Position, please, and working with, with Robin Zander and, and, and Rick Nelson. Well, there's actually some uh, you know, secret history that goes on there. Okay. After I left the NAS. Right. After I left the NAS, a couple of the guys continued to go on. Stooky continued, and Tom Mooney, the drummer, continued. Mm-hmm. And at one point, they formed they formed a band with Rick Nielsen 
and Robin Zander. Yeah. That was called the Sick Men of Europe or something like Sa- that. Uh, Sick Man Over uh, Europe, I believe it was called. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. And so years and years later, um, we did a show together in Ohio, a kind of a festival show in Nelson's Ledges. It was Utopia and The Cars and Cheap Trick. And at that point, you know, we started to form a little bit of a friendship and association. I became a big fan of the band. And at one point, you know, after just kind of palling around, we said, okay, let's do a record together. It was kind of like a difficult, the project was difficult, not in the musical sense, but the record label was pestering them to come up with something that sounded like, I want you to want me, which had... The original was something of a hit, but the Budokan version became a big hit for them. Right. And so we were just getting this constant, you know, where's next position? Where's, you know, the follow up to I want you to want me. So we went into the studio and did a song called uh, You Say Jump, which had the same kind of beat, stuff like that. We tried to reproduce it. It didn't have the same magic or whatever. And then what happened is they went and in desperation, the record company put them together with another producer and they did another song, which was, I don't know, Dance the Night Away or something like that. Dancing the Night Away. Yeah. Dancing the Night Away, which wasn't a hit either. Right. So it was just a weird period for the band because the record company expectations were so high. And yet the label was never satisfied with anything that the band did. So the album kind of didn't get the same sort of push that, you know, some of their other records did. Which is unfortunate. And of but course, it was fun. Yeah. It was fun to make, though. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. And, and Heaven's Falling, the, your song on it, is, is absolutely glorious. Uh, you mentioned the cars, so let me just quickly talk about the new cars. Uh, it, ha- it sees you working with Kasim Sultan and Prairie Prince, which... Over your career, you have worked quite a bit with, uh, and not surprisingly, both exceptional uh, bass players and, and drummer, or bassist and drummer. Um, talk to me about joining the new cars in 2005, because that sort of seemed to me being sort of an antithesis of what Todd does. Here you are not doing a solo thing, and you're sort of getting into a, a band, and you're covering material that was previously done. Uh, the album, It's Alive, was absolutely wonderful, but it didn't last long. Um, why join the new cars? And, and were you disappointed that it didn't go longer? Well, I certainly had to be talked into it. Right. Um, yeah, you're right. It's not the kind of thing that I would naturally do. But the idea was it was not going to be something that um, I would necessarily do for the rest of my career. You know, it was the idea was we would see how much success we could get out of it. We expected much more than we got. And part of it was just fate. Um, two and a half weeks into the tour, after we had uh, taken a huge advance from the merchandising company to get the tour on the road, uh, Elliot broke his collarbone in, a, in an accident on the tour bus and had to go, had to get surgery done and had to rest. And so essentially it ended the tour. And we had essentially spent everything and done all of the advertising and everything for that tour. By the time Elliot was was better and we went back on the road again, we didn't have anything left. We didn't have anything to advertise or promote ourselves with. 
every gig that we did was kind of paying back that debt that we had incurred from the merchandising company. And eventually just realized, you know, that we really only had one opportunity and fate had determined that, you know, we weren't going to be able to capitalize off of it. And, and so that was that. But the irony is that the current band essentially is me, Chasm Sultan, right. Prairie Prince, and Greg Hawks, <laughs> uh, and and Jesse Griff. But right. the actual, you know, the four of us are essentially the new cars <laughs> without Elliot Easton. Yeah. So if Elliot were to drop in, we could probably do, you know, a couple of car songs at any, you know, at any particular point. Yeah. And of course, you've got Prairie and uh, Kasim on uh, This Is Not A Drill and, of course, the new album, White Knight. Um, yep. We've unfortunately run out of time. They've told me 15 minutes. I could, I could, of course, go on forever. And well, ever. we got a couple more. We got a couple. We got okay. a couple more minutes. Well, then, all right. If you don't mind, let me let me just head over to the New York Dolls. Um, here's a band, early 70s, that you know a lot of groups were 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 looking towards. You know, Alice Cooper and Kiss emulating. They were the next big thing, and they sort of became the next big thing. In you know if you look back as iconic bands, but they didn't last long. Uh, talk to me about working on that first album and just what was the vibe that the Dolls had that just made them sort of the thing in the East Coast back in those days? Um, not a lot of people realize, but the, you know, the template for the Dolls was actually the Rolling Stones during, this, during their drag period. You know, when they were doing Have You Seen Your Mother, Standing in the Shadows, and when the Stones were still kind of raw and hadn't done, you know, their kind of psychedelic stuff or whatever, you know, kind of the raw Rolling Stones, who everyone kind of thought at the time, yeah, they're okay players, but they're not the Beatles. And that was kind of the point, you know, it was not to be great players, it was to be more kind of like gritty and grungy and basic and exciting and in drag. The making of the record was kind of, it was pretty chaotic. You know, the bands tended to engage in some extreme consumptive behavior. Every critic and groupie in town was at the sessions all the time. So it was like a circus. You know, the hardest thing was just getting everybody settled down to do a couple of takes. They were in a hurry when it came time to mix the album because they... I remember one session, they say, come on, we got to hurry up. We got to do this because we got a gig in Long Island, you know, so they didn't even take seriously the the final critical aspects of making the record. And what a lot of people don't realize is, yeah, it didn't do very well in the U.S., but they went over to England and they became a giant sensation and the inspiration for the Sex Pistols. So essentially, they're considered the proto-punk band as opposed to the Rolling Stones tribute band that they thought they were. Right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 their mark on on music even though it was very short-lived, the the the, the impact has been uh, forever standing. Um since you mentioned the Beatles real quick, you are, of course have been doing the Ringo Starr and his All-Star band. Um talk to me a little bit about that experience and and you know, I'm assuming as a, as as somebody who grew up through the '60s, you know, the Beatles was the thing. 
when you first sort of joined the band or approached or were approached by Ringo, was there a little bit of that? Wow, a Beatles is is you know, was there any bit of that, or was it like, no, 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 this is just a business thing, and I can hand, you know, like it's still a Beatle, right? Well, I actually knew Ringo from a gig that we had done in the seventies during a Jerry Lewis telethon. Jerry thought that, you know, his audience was getting too old and wanted to skew a little bit younger. So he came up with this idea of Jerry's dance party, something like that, you know? So we were in the auditorium at UNLV with a band that was composed of Ringo and Bill Wyman and me and a couple of guys from Utopia and a few other people, Dave Mason, I think, who would like step in and do a few numbers. And we had a real good time doing that. It was still Ringo's wild years. So, you know, he was uh, uh, consuming substances to some excess at the time. And, uh, and we had a real good time in it. When he put the first all-star band together, he contacted me about being in it. But I was already committed to something else and couldn't. So I wound up in the third variation of the band in 1993. And, uh, yeah, I had known Ringo before that. And he and we immediately kind of, like, got along. He's the more down-to-earth guy, you know, of all of the guys in the Beatles. He's the one who's made the most attempt to kind of get his life all straightened out and deal with his demons and such. And uh, I did another stint with him a couple of years later, um, another version of the All-Star Band. But this particular variation of the All-Stars, this is our sixth year. When this band came together in like 2001, it was an accident just like any other band that he puts together. He just requires that you have had three hit singles sometime in your career and he doesn't nobody gets a psychological evaluation and nobody has to audition or anything they're just kind of in the band and the result of that is sometimes you get people who have socialization issues and sometimes you have people who can't play anybody else's songs but their own and this was the first time in which everybody in the band got along really well with everybody else in the band. And also we can all play the hell out of everybody else's music. And that's why he's kept this band together going on six years now. And the irony is if this band stays together another year or so, we will have outlasted the Beatles. (laughs) That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, Do you have time for one more or? Uh, Exactly one more. (laughs) All right. Last one. Let me bring it back to um, White Knight. Uh, you did uh, the song Chance for Us with uh, Daryl Hall. You first worked yeah. with Hall & Oates on their War uh, Babies album, I guess, of 74. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about Daryl. What did you see in him back in 1974 when you were producing? And, and you know, looking at his career now, just an outstanding musician. Um you know, what What do you see in, in, with him now and, and then? Um, a lot of people don't realize, but Hall & Oates didn't start out as a Blue-Eyed Soul duet. They Correct. were very eclectic, their first couple of records. So there was a lot of folk, a little bit of kind of jazzy stuff and pop music. But the biggest hit they had up to that point was She's Gone. 
And War Babies was the album that came after that. And John and Daryl, you know, and Daryl doing, you know, a whole lot of the writing, you know, kind of had a different thing in mind. They wanted to continue their sort of eclectic uh, approach to music. And I found that really interesting. You know, the songs were, you know, had more interesting structures sometimes, or they told, uh, they had a lot of poetry and interesting storylines. Um, and that made it a fun record to to make. Um, but the record label was upset that the, there was no follow-up to She's Gone on it. And so they essentially lost their label after War Babies. And I think that's when they made the, the decision that they had to focus on something. And they might as well focus on what brought them to prominence in the first place, which was ultimately that blue-eyed soul thing. Daryl today, you know, even though what we did together on the record, this sounds very old school, um, blue-eyed soul kind of thing. Daryl still likes, you know, to get out of that box when he has the liberty to do so. So his solo records often don't sound like, um, they don't sound at all like Hall & Oates records. You know, right. he does recordings with like Robert Fripp and people like that. So I think Daryl still has, you know, that kind of, musical curiosity and wants to explore other areas uh even though you know the brand is you know the blue eyed soul thing yeah it really is um todd great pleasure today and thank you for the extra 10 minutes and um hopefully we can do this uh, at, at at another point sure hope so um i'll talk to you soon then great thank you bye-bye now thank, thank you bye-bye bye-bye you're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. The best in paranormal talk radio is here on Podcast One as part of the Jericho Network. Beyond the Darkness examines all aspects of the supernatural every day, Monday through Friday. And now, the same team behind Beyond the Darkness bring you the most frighteningly real-life dramas on True Crime Tuesday. Subscribe now by visiting darknessradio.com. Then, click the True Crime Tuesday banner. Again, that's True Crime Tuesday. Visit darknessradio.com and click the True Crime Tuesday banner. Subscribe now. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to the second part of uh, today's episode. Big thank you to Bill Leverty, Neil Smith, and of course Todd Rundgren. But uh, on this part, I have got a fantastic, fantastic guitarist. Uh, from Uriah Heep, it is Mick Box. Now, you might have noticed, I, I have a lot of bands that are European uh, in origins, and I, and I love 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 featuring european bands of course i i've been a big fan of european music for for many years and i think that mainstream media in north america tend to overlook a lot of great music you know yes we know white snake yes we know def leppard yes we know um those kinds of bands uh, europe for example but we overlook bands like thunder I mean, here's a band that's had 25 to 30 years career, sells out all over Europe, and the only thing we know about them here is that sometime in the 90s, they had a song called Backstreet Symphony. I mean, unbelievably um, shameful, because th th they have such a great, great body of work. Um, take a band like Status Quo. They were on Live Aid in Europe. They tour constantly, 45-year career, if not longer. 
over here probably couldn't sell out a bar. And it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you go to England and you mention status quo, the band, it's as if you're talking about royalty. You go to downtown New York, you mention status quo, and they go, oh, yeah, 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 things have always been the same here. It's like, we're talking about a band. Oh, okay, I didn't know. Uh, another guy I've reached out to, um, I reached out to his publicist recently, was Ginger uh, of the uh, Wild Hearts. Here's another band in Europe, you know, uh, tons of great albums, incredible music, incredible songwriter, incredibly creative, and North America doesn't really know about the Wild Hearts or Ginger. Now, I'm hoping to have that interview for you later this summer. I've, I've put in a request. I hope it comes through. I think it would be absolutely uh, fascinating to hear uh, Ginger and get inside his head and see how he puts together a song and all that wonderful stuff. Anyway, uh, anyway, so I, I hope you're I hope you're with me on this journey. And, and you know, when I post this episode, if you can go to the Facebook or the Twitter and say, "Yeah, Mitch, we'd love to hear about more European bands," or "You know what? Let's stick to Bon Jovi or, or whatever." Because um, I'm curious to see if, if people are following me on this and, and interested in listening to these European bands like I do. Um, you know, I, I also reached out to a Thunder recently to do an interview. Now, uh, before coming to Rock Talk, I had interviewed uh, Luke Morley uh, and Danny Bowes for uh, other um, venues or outlets, if you want. And I would love to get him here on Rock Talk because they, they just tell an incredibly compelling story. Anyway, anyway, um, I could ramble on forever and always I am uh, loquacious in that fashion. So let's get over to Mick Box of Uriah Heep. Incredible story. He tells a tale of the band's entire career, keeping in mind they've been around since 1969. We talk about singer David Byron. Of course, he passed away, I believe it was in 1985. Uh, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was 1985. And um, just an incredible voice, by the way. Uh, such a great loss. I mean, just, just an incredible loss for, for music. But uh, we, we cover all that stuff. So sit back, enjoy. This one's a bit shorter. It's only about uh, 29 minutes or so, 30 minutes or so. But uh, really, let's get inside the mind of Mick Box. You will absolutely find this fascinating. He is an absolutely fascinating person and uh, genuinely nice. Uh, so here you go. From Uriah Heep, it is a guitarist extraordinaire, the one, the only, Mick Box. We are speaking with Uriah Heep's Mick Box. Uh, Mick, a great, great pleasure to talk uh, to talk with you. It's uh, It's been about a year since we last spoke, and... Uh, Let's let's just get caught up on everything that's going on in Uriah Heap world, basically. Well, that sounds good to me. Thanks for having us on. <laughs> yeah, you know. Great. Uh, the band, of course, started in 1969. L let me just start off with that sort of simple question. Here we are in 2017. What, what's it been like over the last... I mean, it's almost 50 years, so what's that ride been like for you? It's, it's been a good roller coaster ride. You know, there's been lots of ups, lots of downs, lots of in-between, but, you know... I think the important thing is we're still here doing it. And I think that's down to the fact that, you know, we've still got the, the same passion for what we do, you know, and I think that's our driving force, you know, that gives us the energy to keep going. Because, we, 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 you know, we tour in 60 countries around the world, so um, we're constantly out there. Well, but, except Canada. Know, except Canada, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a real shame. I mean, we just want, we, we want to promote it just to be invited. We can't just come on, turn up, can we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're we're, we're going to have to work to, to get you out we, here. We need something to invite us over, but yeah, we'd love to. Yeah, and of course now we've got um, 
new management with Adam Parsons and, and, and Ace Trump and Ace Spring Canadian, we've got a good chance. <laughs> yeah, you really do, in fact. And, and of course, Adam, uh, I believe, also handles Europe and um, Black Star Black Riders. Black Star Riders, Thin Lizzy, and Saxon, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so it's a good, good stable to be in, yeah. Well, in fact, that, that to me sounds like a package tour right there. Oh, I wish. Yeah, I mean, who knows? It might, the penny may drop, and, and that may may come to fruition. <laughs> so, so let me get to some of the of the current news, and then we'll work our way back slowly. Um, your singer, Bernie Shaw, yes. recently had to undergo some kind of surgery. How yep. is he doing? Is I mean, is he back to to being where he needs to be? Well, he's, he's, he's pretty close. Yeah, he's doing fantastically well. Yeah, he's recovered really well. And um, I think at the end of this month, um, both he and I go out and we do a thing called Rock, Meet Cla- Rock Meets Classic, which is, uh, it, it goes on right through Germany and parts of Switzerland. And, and it's with the, um, the Prague uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, and it's great. We go along and uh, it, it's kind of, uh, we did it before with Alice Cooper. And it's one of those things where you go on, you do about four or five songs and, and you have four or five artists doing four or five songs. So we've got um, Steve Luthicke from Toto doing a few, uh, Don from, um from the Eagles. Um, who else we got? Um, I think Bob Catley um, from Magnum and, uh, and, our, and our good selves. So it's, it's really good. So basically what we do is you all go on and do your your songs with the full orchestra backing, which is which is immense, you know, because the, the orchestra takes the the songs to a different dimension, um, and it's all good. And at the end, we all get on stage and do the encore. <laughs> I should imagine this time we'll get up and do Hotel California. But previously, we got up with Alice and did um, Schools Out, which is a great thrill. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thrill working with uh, with Alice. And so let me get to some of the other stuff that's going on. You have this Pledge Music campaign for all these remasters, the Uriah Heap remasters? Yes, well, BMG got in touch with me and said, you know, would we willing, you know, be willing to um, you know, be involved? Because quite often these things come out and the band uh, have no involvement at all, you know. Um, it's all even done without our consent because, you know, we don't have the ownership. But BMG came to me, um, a guy called Ian Bennett from BMG in, in, in London, and I've been working closely with them, and it's, it's gone really well because we've been working very closely on not only just remastering, but finding lots of bonus tracks to put on the remasters too that the fans haven't heard. And interviews between me and Ken Hensley, our old keyboard player. And, and it's generally, a, you know, it's a really good repackaging, if you like. Yes, so, so let, let's look at the, the three albums that, that are coming out. Um, look at yourself and, and talk to me about your involvement because you're, you're, you did the interviews, but are you also in there and making sure that the that the remasters sound proper? Are, are you in? Oh, there? absolutely! Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's totally hands on because um, you know we don't want it all digitalized, do we? You know, we want to remain faithful to what it was, um, but bring in, you know, enhance it somewhat. Um, so yeah, it's very very hands on. Um, I, I, you know, whether I'm traveling around the world, you know, I, you know I'll, I'll open up my laptop and, and something will ping in, and there'll be something else from WeTransfer, a Dropbox with another version of something to listen to. I'll listen to it, make my comments, and it goes back. And, and we're going back and forwards like that all the time. Yeah. So so let's look at. Um, uh, wait. In fact, let's look at look at yourself. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, came out of course in '71. Talk to me a little bit about putting that one together and where the band was at that time only only two years into your career yeah i think that we, when you know the previous album very heavy very humble had um 
It came out of a band called Spice and grew into Uriah Heep. And Spice was uh, a band that didn't want to just play one genre of music. We wanted to incorporate all types of music, like you know, the folk, rock, jazz, blues, you know, um, everything. And um, hence the name Spice, because there's many spices. Um, but there again, um, when it got to Uriah Heep, you know, I saw our first album reflected a lot of that. So there was a lot of diversity on that first album. There was a, you know, a beautiful anti-war ballad like Come Away Melinda on acoustic guitar. There was Gypsy, that very, you know, very heavy metal now, they people call it. Um, there was much diversion, you know, um, lots of sort of jazzy things, folky things, bluesy things, and a lot of rock things, you know, so it was, it was a, a bit of everything. When we got to look at yourself, after we'd been touring off the back of that first sound for a while, we actually found that we really wanted to be a, um, um, a, a full-on rock band, you know, with no airs and graces, just straight-ahead rock. We didn't want to go on those other areas at all. Because, you know, Salisbury, our second album, was very... Um, diverse much of the first album to be honest because we had a 27 piece brass section on a very long track at the title track Salisbury so when we got to look at yourself it was a matter of we've done a lot of touring we decided that we just want to be a straight head rock band and I think that reflected in look at yourself and it did very well for us because um, there were some great songs in there apart from the title track but July morning has almost become our anthem now that we take around the world and people like hearing in the live arena thank goodness yeah and and um, what was I going to say? The the song "Look at Yourself" was actually covered by a Montreal band years ago, a band called Grim Skunk. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but that that's sort of the no, Montre I haven't. No, no. That's the that's the uh, Montreal connection to it. They they're a, a punk band, and they and they redid "Look at Yourself." I'll, uh, oh well, <laughs> but it certainly got that energy. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, so I could see that working. Yeah. The, the one other thing I want to talk about while while we're here is David Byron, the uh, the yes. lead singer. Unfortunately, in February, we, we remembered him as he passed in 1985. What was it like working with David? You know, uh, you look at some of the vocalists out there now, especially in heavy metal, they all say that he's the reason they got started. He's the voice that they, they, they aspire to. Um, what was it like for you working with him and just his, his talent? Just speak to his talent if you can. Well, he, he was just um, a marvellous vocalist, a marvellous singer, you know. He just, I think there's lots of singers out there that are just vehicle for the song, but David used to live within the song. And and by doing so, um, everyone connected with him who was listening to his voice. Um, and it was very believable, everything, every word that came out of his mouth, you know. And and, uh, and I think that's, that's, that's where he touched everyone, you know. I'm unfortunate with David, though, he was... He was um, he carried the rock star persona for 24-7, if you like, and he could never switch off, <laughs> um, which, is, which is a bit unfortunate. But, um, but his voice was, you know, bar none. You know, he's one of the greatest um, rock vocalists there has been. Yeah, he really is. And, um, boy, it's, it's good to know that with these remasters and you're coming up with bonus tracks and unreleased stuff and alternate mixes that we get to hear more of David. That's, that's you know, the bonus in all of this, I guess. Oh yes, because you're you're, you're hearing um, on the bonus track some of the songs in transition period, you know, before they you know they appear on the album like they did, you know. So that you see the working of, and you know, not necessarily polished up too well on the vocal side. So you get the rawness of Davey too. But you know, whatever way, you, whatever you get of him is all class. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, Demon and Demons and Wizards is another one coming out in the uh, remasters uh, series. It is sort of the breakthrough for the band in North America. In fact, it is the breakthrough. I mean, that's the one that sort of set you 
on your path. Kind, kind of worldwide, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me let, let's get into that one uh, a little bit. Um, what was it about that one that was so different than the previous ones, where the world, as we, as we know, responded and said, "Oh yeah, okay, th- this band I is think, serious." I think because we hit on the lyrical content of fantasy, and that just triggered everyone's imagination, um, and a big time. And the mere fact that the album was called Dreams of Wizards and, and we had a Roger Dean artwork and, and, and the first, it was the first time we had the, the, you know, the audio package and the art package together as one, you know, and I just, it, it just, it just worked at every level. But I think, I think the thing that really, really got to everyone was the actual lyrical content being you know, that fantasy thing, which, which really did catch everyone's imagination. And lots of people have taken it on since then, you know, they picked up the baton. Yeah, they really have. Now, now, you talk about the artwork and, and all that coming together. In this day of MP3 and streaming and downloads, artwork has gone out the window. We, we don't really pay any attention to it. Um, just talk to me about that importance. Or is there an importance? I mean, was, was the artwork part of, of the appeal of an album? Well, for us it was, yes, very much so. Um, we thought it was part of the package, you know, um, it's good to be honest, you look at the album before you hear it, don't you? <laughs> so it's got to capture you right there and then, you know, and uh, we've always had that sort of element within our covers, whether it be a shock element, a fantasy element, or something that just grabs your attention. And even the Look at Yourself cover, you know, where you picked it out and there's a mirror and you're looking at yourself, you know. Um, we always went for that because, you know, we're very aware as fans of music ourselves and buying music and buying vinyl and stuff like that, that when you flip through the racks, um, you know, the... the, the the covers that are going to get your attention usually have great content. You know, in fact, uh, as a record buyer myself, there's a lot of albums that I bought only because of the album cover, and then you discover after that yeah, music's kind of great. But, you know, especially in the 1980s where I come from, in terms of music buying, you looked at some of those heavy metal ones, the, the Quiet Riots and the uh, Poisons and stuff. They had these intriguing album covers that you just went, okay, let me check this out, and... Um, it's a shame that we're losing that now, unfortunately. It is because, you know, um, when you put that much attention and, and detail into your artwork, then the chances are that that's happened with the music too, you know. So it's, it's a complete package thing as far as I'm concerned. If you just put it in a brown paper bag, then it just it, it, it doesn't speak to me at all. <laughs> True. Uh, but, of course... Uh... Who who did the brown paper? Wasn't it Led Zeppelin uh, or, or Alice Cooper or? It might or have been the, Who or someone like that. I've got yeah, no idea, but yeah, yeah, somebody did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. and it worked for them because well, that that's quite good because it it worked for them because it was um, a reverse of what was going on at the time. Um, so sometimes that speaks volumes. Now, now the album also has Lee Kerslake on uh, on drums. He of course went on and did those great records with Ozzy. Um, what was it like getting Lee in the band, and and what did he bring to the sound? Well, we actually, when, when Lee came in, you know, we actually found we had a heap drummer because he, 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 he played uh, in a very freestyle, open style, which was, and his bass drum work was incredible, you know, up there with Bonham. Um, so what he brought along was, apart from that, was he had a great voice. And uh, then, then, then it strengthened our harmony department, you know, because you know, Heaps always had great harmonies. Um, in fact, we, we're one of the first bands that used harmony as a, almost as another instrument. Um, and he came along, so he had the strength in, in, in vocals and then certainly strength in drums. He was a powerhouse, and, and that's what the band needed. It gave us a good kick. He really, uh, he really drove home sort of that sound. Um, 
Where does that bring us to the next album, then? The next one that's coming out is The Magician's Birthday. Magician's Birthday, yeah. Um, talk to me about getting in the studio and, and putting that one, because now you've had this great success. Is, was there this sense of pressure, like, oh, God, we've got to follow it up, or you just say, listen, we, we make an album, we make an album, and it'll be what it'll be? Well, not from the band, but from the management, most definitely, yeah. They were pushing us to, you know, full throttle all the way down. <laughs> you know, they were, give us another one, give us another one, give us another one, put you out here, put you out there, you know, to the point where, you know, that's where the breakdowns started to come in, in, in the crack started to show in the overall um, structure of what the band was doing. Um, but, you know, we, we were never afraid of a challenge, and, and we came out on Magician's Birthday, um, I think it was a year, two in one year, wasn't it, with Demons and Wizards? And it was... Um, it was quite a feat, really, but, you know, um, such was the creativity of the band at the time that we could pull it off, whereas lots of bands would never have never been able to do it. Yeah, they, they weren't. Um, later on in the band's career, you worked with John Wetton, who, of course, recently passed away. Uh, yes, indeed. Unfortunately. What was it like working with John, and sort of how do you remember him? Well, John was a huge talent um, in every respect, you know, in writing and singing and and playing and everything else. He, he, he was, uh, you know, he was the total package, um, John. Um, but when he came to Heap, you know, he, he came in with Heap and of course we were riding high, pretty high at the time. And, uh, he enjoyed all the fruits of that because it was different to everything else he'd done before. So he was kind of in, in, in a rock band, you know, full time, you know, um, and that's why that was one of his wish lists, you know, he put a tick by that, you know, with us. <laughs> so he did two albums with us and then of course he moved on to other stuff. Um, and then went on to form Asia and had, 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 you know, great success with that. But yeah, John's a very, very talented guy, you know, and his, his arranging, his, his, his vocal arrangements, everything, yeah, he's, he, he was class. Yeah, he certainly was class. Um, you, of course, have been with Uriah Heep the entire band's career. You are sort of the, the rock to the foundation. Um, talk to me about the challenges of keeping the band alive for nearly 50 years and and remaining there and and were there any moments where you thought okay um it's time for me to go join some other band or it's time for me to go start something else i think in the 80s um when we had a um a band that recorded an album called conquest when we had john sloman sing with us i think we got to a point there where i i really couldn't see it working or progressing or going the way we wanted because john came from a band called lone star which is a world rock band who, who, who were very revered within the the music community if you like but when he came to us he started singing songs in a very Stevie Wonderish way which didn't work at all and it kind of um you know the fans were put off by it and and, and so were we so I had to wind it down so I, I I I just said to everyone look it's not working you know we're gonna have to leave it and I, I had a bit of self-pity for about two days I think of in my my apartment in London and, and I think I drank too much vodka and got a steaming hangover and then I kind of um came out of that and said, well, what can I do now? And my agent was actually saying, look, you can get a mixed box band together, you can do this, you can do that, do that, do that. But, you know, I, 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 was, I was of the thought that, you know, if I kept the thing going with, with the right musicians and still good songs, that it still had life. And it would also give people access to the talents of David and Gary that were now no longer with us, you know. So um, by me keeping the band going, kept uh, their, their music alive too and gave access to other players to, and singers to, um, to, to gain from it. And so it kind of became one of those things where it was very, very short-lived. Um, any thoughts like that? And then and the next week I phoned up Lee, who was actually in Aussie, as you said. 
and I phoned him up because he was meant to be going to America. And um, I said to Lee, how you doing, mate? I said, I have a great time. Um, he sent me a postcard and all the usual jokes and stuff, you know, and he said, well, I'm not going because Sharon decided that she wants an all-American band. So I just said quickly to him, well, look, you know, I've just dissolved that band. I've got this, 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 you know, recording contract, a little bit of work. Um, uh, are you interested? He said, as long as it's not with our old manager, Jerry Bond, I'm more than interested. I said, well, look, I'll be managing it. So he said, well, I'm in. And then, of course, Bob Daisley was at a loose end, having just been told about America was a no-no with Aussie. So I got Bob involved, and suddenly I, in, in, in one phone call, nearly had a band together. <laughs> yeah, and a great band uh, at that. And... By the way, that, that whole Aussie thing about trying to get an American band, I've personally never understood it. I've always figured that you want to put out the best possible musicians and the best possible lineup. Uh, to, to, yeah, to... I think they, they, I mean, the, the, the whole, at that time, it was very image conscious, wasn't it? And it was the time when you had your hair piled up and you were wearing makeup and, and girly clothes and stuff, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> And all the posing, so I guess he wanted to go that route. Yeah, but anyway, but whatever. Um, but but you know the talent. I mean, I, I think that if they'd have stayed together, I mean, it would have been immense, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, you know, and, I, I think they'd have taken it to another another dimension for sure. Well, it, it, I, I don't want to say it would have been equal to Sabbath because I, I, in fact, I don't really think anything is equal to Sabbath, but it certainly would have been up there in sort of the pantheon of. Of great bands and great lineups uh, in history. Definitely, because but... within within that the, the, um, nucleus of people, you know, the writing was, you know, and it's all about songs in the end, you know, and the the the, the writers within that band, they they could have they could have really gone on to great things. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it it, it is what it is, as we say. Now, um, totally driven came out in two thousand fifteen, and and I've got a couple of comments on that. First of all, um, are we working on a new album? Uh, for 2017, 2018, and then sort of what motivates you to keep doing it? Because with a 50-year career, you can put your name on the marquee, you'll get the same amount of fans, you can pull out you know, the, the 20 greatest songs and put on a, a, a roaring two-hour show. Sort of why put yourself through the, the, the emotion and the struggle of coming up with new material and trying to make it look good and trying to make it sound good? Just plug and play the old stuff and off we go that's very simple um you know um you know we we always look forward you know we're a band that moves forward we've always released new material and it's our passion to do so we've still got the same passion for what we do which gives the energy to keep on doing it and so you know writing new music is a must for us you know it revitalizes us as well as the fans and um it's something we have to do you know um, if you end up you know, um, just treading the boards, playing the same old songs only, it, it soon gets very tired. I mean, I've, I, I don't want to name any names, but, you know, there are packages that take these bands around and they all look pretty bored, stiff, really. You know, there's no passion or excitement there at all. It's all gone, you know. And and I don't ever want to get to that, you know. We're, we're not a band that shoegazes. We're a band that gets out there and, and immerses ourselves in it and, 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 um, and really give, you know, our all to everything we do. So, so then talk to me a little bit about the, the songwriting process, because I'm imagining that, you know, when you're 20, you write a song a certain way, and when you're 30, life experience has you write a different way, and 40, and 50, has it changed for you over the years, or is it, is it the same motivation? I mean, what is the motivation in terms of I songwriting? Think this is, yeah, I mean, basically what it is, is uh, <clears throat> for heap at the moment, I feel like a keyboard player, Phil Lanzon and myself, we're the principal writers. 
and we're pretty in tune with each other, and you know, in lyrically and, and and musically. So um, we write very quickly, and um, we enjoy doing it. So the, the, you know, why, why not enjoy doing it? You know, <laughs> if you're having that much fun, why stop? So we like writing songs, and and, and it's something that gives us a, a real buzz. But um, so so we're never going to stop, you know. And, and talking a little bit of content, I mean, just have a look around the world today. There's enough there. If you've got your eyes open, your antenna out, there's enough there to write about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that is definitely <laughs> for sure. Um, Take no prisoners, the David Byron album that you yep. played on. Um, I, I want to go back to that because I, I find it interesting. You know, Uriah Heep is going. Uh, Demon and Wizards, there's all kinds of heat around the band, and he steps out and <clears> does this solo album. And, of course, you, you join him on it. What, what was that like? What was the thinking behind that? What, did that take away from Uriah Heep? Did it add to the... Le- I mean, just sort of contextualize Take No Prisoners for me. Yeah, I would, I would say that it took away from Uriah Heep to a degree. Um, you know, uh, it was fun to do. I mean, David wanted me to be involved with the writing and the playing and everything else, so I was more than happy to do that with him. Um, but, you know, the solo albums, you know, they, they don't tend to actually do too much, do they? You know, um, and there's, lots of, lots, there's not many people that step outside of the, the, the name of the band and, and go on to success. You know, they just don't have that, you know. So it's it's... I think it's interesting to look back on now and listen to it, but, you know, at the time I thought that maybe it was a bit... It just took away from everything that band was doing. Yeah. You know, it shows a bit of... It, it fragments things a little, doesn't it, you know? Well, it, it can. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Kiss, and they famously released four solo albums on the same day in 1978, and then two years later, the band at that time with Peter and Ace do- doesn't exist anymore. So there, there is something about it. It sort of puts water in the wine, if you want. You know. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think you know. I mean, it's egos as well, isn't it? You know, you do a solo album, you get hundred percent, you hundred percent say on what you, you, you know, you're doing. You can't be in a band. You got one fifth say. You know. <laughs> now, now you've done stuff with Iris Spearfist, but in terms of solo albums, that that's something you've sort of stayed away from. Well, I, you know, we're so busy with Heap around right. the world. Um, if I came home to my family and said, now I'm going to go immerse myself in a solo album for the next three months, I'd probably get lynched. <laughs> you know, because I'm away so often, working either in the studio or doing stuff all the time with Heap, that when I come home, I have to take my rock and roll hat off and put my family hat on. You know, and they demand it of me, and, and, and rightfully so. So I'll come back and do all the things I do with my, my kid and run into all these sporting events and stuff, which I absolutely love, you know. And we go out and see films with, with my wife, Sheila, or we'll go to, um, you know, uh, go out for a meal or whatever, you know, and j- just have family life. It's great. And I think it's a good balance, you see. I think if you do one thing too much, you, you, t- you tend to lose sight and don't have that balance. Have you always had a, a proper family and career balance? When, you know, going through the 70s and 80s when you were younger and there was a whole bunch of stuff going on, was there the same balance, or at some point you neglected it and went, ah, whoops, I got to get back on on a? Sort yeah, of a yeah. Game. I mean, the early the early days when it was really hitting, you know, and we're going to America and all over the place, and it's really hitting big, and we're on Lear jets, and we got whole floors of hotels and bodyguards outside, and we've got limo each person, all this stuff. You know, it does get to you um, a little bit, you know, and you think, wow, you know, this is how life's going to be for here on in. <laughs> uh, little, you know, little surprise we get there. 
it doesn't last that long. Um, so yes, but I've always, you know, I, I, I've always been aware that you need that balance, and, and I think it's very good. You know, family's very important to keep you, you know, keep you on the straight and narrow. To be honest, yeah, it really. Does. See, the trouble, the trouble is, you see, if you don't have a family, you don't have any of that grounding, and this is what happens to a lot of, a lot of musicians. I probably, you know, maybe David Byron might be a good example. Is that he didn't really have any family. He had a wife, but he didn't really have a family. So when he came off the road, he was still rock and roll. He still, do, you know, drinking as much as he did, and you know, and, and living the whole style out, you know, whether he was on the road or not on the road. And um, whereas I came back home, and you know, I wanted to be with my family. You can't do what you're doing on the road, you know, at home. And um, so I always had that sort of leveler. Um, whereas David was on it 24-7, you know, no matter where he was. And, and that's also got to be one of those uh, wake-up moments or, or, you know, you get off the road, and, and I've heard a lot of musicians say this, that when you get off the road, the wife doesn't say, how was the road? She says, hey, take out the garbage, it's Monday morning, right? So. Oh, dear, mow the lawn. Yeah, you're <laughs> off, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, you come back to the, the magical list. Yeah, uh, all the things that have gone wrong that is your job that's right well, <laughs> but that's good you know, you know what you can do you know what, it's great you walk the dog you, you, you go and do all these things it's fantastic no it's a great life balance now um, before the interview I was mentioning to a friend that I was going to be talking to you and he said oh please ask him about the Equator album and especially the song Rockarama they are my absolute favorite etc cetera, etc cetera. so alright here we are let me ask you about Equator um <laughs> You know, mid '80s. Uh, what was that album like for you? And um, you know, any any memories? And then maybe we'll talk about that. Song. Well, the the main memory I've got of it, to be honest, is is, is that um, uh, the the record company changed mid mid recording. So um, you know, we 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 were on a. I think the label was Portrait. I think through CBS, and they specifically made this label just for rock acts like ourselves. But halfway through making the album, the, the label has folded. So it was a very difficult thing to, to finish because of finances and things like that. You know, it's, it's very tough. So, um, but, you know, never, nevertheless, we, you know, like, like all these things, you know, you come out fighting, don't you? You do the best you can with what you've got. And, and that was Equator. But, you know, once we released it, as there was no label per se to, 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 to do anything with it, it just disappeared into the ether. <laughs> Yeah, and, and of course, like like these things do, <laughs> like they do, and and, and uh, if you can, uh, just just speak to me about Rockarama. I mean, it was a single. Well, Rockarama was 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 a, a, one of these things that we 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 uh, we tried to write as a, um, a radio friendly song, if you like, you know, touching all the MTV things and all that stuff, you know, to try and get some sort of airplay. Um, Rather than just the great, you know, the standard rock that we, we, we used to write. So it's one of those um, stabs at commerciality that, that worked to a degree because we've got video out and we've got lots of airplay, uh, video play as well, MTV stuff. But um, never went beyond that, to be honest. No, and, they, and I guess that's, and we'll finish with this, but that's got to be sort of the, the great part of where you are in your career now is that you don't have to write for MTV. You don't have to. Um, it's got to be somewhat liberating at this point that the next album that'll be out... By the way, when will it be out? 2017 or 2018? I think it'll be 18, yeah. We're writing it at the moment, and right. um, I'm just actually come back from Phil's place down on the coast of uh, England where we've been writing, and um, we've got all the ideas now. We're doing some lyric stuff, and, uh, and we're, we're trying to get you know, all the songs written before we go in the studio, obviously. 
because uh, the last one we did outside, we actually wrote in the studio. I think we wrote 11 songs in 10 days, I think, and recorded the backing track. So it was pretty... Um, Pretty intense, actually, but pretty intense, yeah. <laughs> but there is a freedom at this point now, right? I mean, you, you're you're sort of well, doing funny what you enough, want to do. We're feeling that freedom because we, we we decided to to just let our music go where it needs to go, and not restrict ourselves and say, okay, it's got to stop here. We've got to have a middle eight here. We've got to have this. Um, if we feel that it needs an ethereal piece to follow uh, this piece, then so be it, you know. And we write it. So we're we're kind of in that mode right now, um, and it's working very well. And, of course, there's no record company pressure. Is the next album on a label, or are you going to go through Pledge Music? Yeah, oh, on a label, definitely on a label, yeah. Okay, that's the, that's the important thing. Um, yeah, we're know, between four or five labels at the moment. Oh, okay, okay. So is there still an importance for labels for, for you in terms of how they market it and how they, they, they distribute it and get it out there? Or, I think so, especially with a band like Your Eye Heat Tour in 60 countries. You know, you need to have distribution in all those countries, to be honest, to make it all work. And, you know, promoters like having a record company's involvement, you know, because when they've, you know, got some tours to put together, they can put it on, you know, um, on, on, the, on the sheets that, the, they're, you know, the record company's advertising the album, they'll put the dates on, you know, and they, they work together closely on this sort of stuff. And when they, the tour, tour um, promoter puts his posters together, you know, they'll have the record company's information on there, you know. So um, generally it's, it's a cog in the world that we do need, yeah. Yeah, so that, that'll be great. Um, Mick, a, a great, great pleasure. Um, very much hoping that we can get you over to to Canada and North America. And uh, Well, you know. I, you know, I'm, I'm packed. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's... It's, it's, okay, we've got lots of friends out there. I mean, I've got a um, guitar company who, who, um, who I endorsed called Carparelli, a guy called Mike Carparelli around the Toronto area. So he's been gagging for us to get out there, you know, so... There's many people who want to go out there. Of course, you know, Bernie, being from Victoria, B.C., he wants to go on his homeland as well. <laughs> so we've got everything flying where we want to be there. We just need someone to take us there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I still say that uh, if you can get the whole uh, label roster from, from Adam with, with Black Star Riders uh, and um, Europe and yourself, I think that would just be a, a killer. That um, would be a killer too, wouldn't it? it? It would because it would cover sort of the, the 80s, pop stuff with, with Europe, and, and of course their, their more recent stuff, your classic uh, 70s sound and, and uh, everything you've done since then, and Black Star Riders is basically both of those bands combined into one because their, their sensibilities are great. It would, just, it would just be a fun yeah. three hours or four hours of just rock and it roll. It would be, wouldn't it? You're yeah, back to the old Shed days, isn't it? You know? Yeah. With those sort of packages, yeah, it'd be great. I think we both need to get Ace on the phone after this conversation and say, hey, we just had a great Consider it done. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Mick. Always a pleasure. Happy days. Thank you, my friend. Thank Take you. care. Talk to you soon Happy now. days. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you to Uriah Heap's Mick Box. Of course, Alice Cooper Group's Neil Smith, Bill Everty of Firehouse, and Todd Rundgren. Follow me on Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, and uh, bye for now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? 
Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.